Let's put our hands together and give a warm Pendel Ministry Network welcome to Rick Du Bois. Well, it's an honor to be here tonight on such a special night as the night of ordination. I, too, will remember the night that I was ordained. Brother Bontaine was the speaker. He preached on prayer. If you know him, that's no surprise. And when the message was over, he, uh, we had prayer. We had a great time of prayer, and, and then we were going to go out to dinner. But my dad was the assistant superintendent of the district, and so he had invited us to go with the officials and spend a little time with Mark Bontaine. Boy, was I excited about that. And so we started looking for him. We couldn't find him. And they finally found him after he got through preaching on prayer. He went back and started praying, and he was still praying. And we had to get him to stop praying long enough to get in the car because he believed in the power of prayer. And I'm not sure which affected me the most that night, his sermon or how he lived and how he did what he did. But I'll never forget that night when they lay hands on me. Such an honor to be a part of this night. I, uh, something happens at ordination. There's, there's, the, there's the natural dynamic and the spiritual dynamic. In the natural, it's kind of like when Paul sent letters with those that he had raised up and poured into and by the letter he would put in their hand, they could go to a church and say, Paul the Apostle says, I've got the stuff. You can trust me. I've been trained at the feet of Paul. And there's a certain credibility that goes with that. And in our system, we put you through the ringer. We do. We do. We make sure you've got the stuff. But once you do, we give you a little card that says, we believe you've got the stuff. And it opens doors for you. And in a way, that's like the letter. But on the spiritual side... When you push all the way through to ordination, what happens at the moment of laying on of hands is supernatural. I promise you, you may not feel it tonight, I don't know, but in the same way that at a wedding ceremony, once the man and the woman enter into a covenant before God, everything changes. From the moment of that covenant being declared, what was sin is now expected. What was off limits is now a part of the responsibility. Everything shifts. The dynamic shifts. And a marriage is not just made on earth, but in heaven. And this afternoon, this evening, when hands are laid on you, something is going to shift between you and heaven. It's going to be a dynamic moment. And those of you who just received your first credential, don't stop there. Keep on. Don't just get our approval. Get our hands laid on you. And finish the, what you began until the day comes when you too are ordained. This is not just an Assemblies of God process. It's a biblical process. And something happens in that dynamic moment. And we don't lay hands on anyone suddenly. We, we know those among us before we lay hands on them. We're a little slow to get to know you. Sometimes it's our fault. Sometimes it's your fault. We won't go into that tonight. <laughs> but between the two of us, let's finish this process and I can't wait to hear about those of you that tonight stood here, that you'll have your turn for this incredible moment. Now, to those of you who are about to be ordained, I'm going to preach to you, but if you don't mind, I'm going to preach to those who are here that aren't you as well. I believe there's a lot of ministers in the house that every one of us, I don't know about you, but if I don't get preached at pretty regularly, I get, off, I get offline a little bit. Preaching is good for us. God established a seven-day cycle in the week, and he put one of those days as a spiritual day of encounter because he knows we're only good about six days without being preached at. 
And so he established the process, and I found out that sometimes us preachers need to be preached at just as much as those we preach at need to be preached at, because something happens in the preached word in our faith and adjustment and our thought process. It corrects things that have kind of gotten off kilter, and God uses it. Tonight, I pray God will use this sermon. I loved the statement that you guys made using the R-E, the re, re different things. And tonight, picking up on that, I want to talk to you about re-engaging in the pursuit of the anointing. Re-engaging in the pursuit of the anointing. First Kings chapter 19, verse 19 says, So Elijah went from there and found Elisha of Saphat, he was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen, and he himself was driving the 12th pair. Elijah went up to him, threw his cloak around him. Elisha then left his oxen and ran after Elijah. Let me kiss my father and mother goodbye, he said, and then I will come with you. Go back, Elijah replied. What have I done to you? So Elisha left him and went back, and he took his yoke of oxen, slaughtered them, burned the plowing equipment, cooked the meat, gave it to the people, and they ate, and then he set out to follow Elijah and become his attendant. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus that in the next few moments, you would, uh, you would call us back to a deeper level of anointed ministry and to a dependence on the work of the Spirit, that you would do something new in us we would re-engage in our pursuit of the move of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Over the last number of generations of the Assemblies of God alone, I can pick on the church across the nation, but if I just look at the Assemblies of God, we've had ebbs and flows. We've had times of, of being very, very revival, very much in a fresh move, a new move, good things happening, great things that are supernatural that we can only say, look what the Lord has done. And then there are times when that doesn't seem to be as intense. The season of that doesn't seem to be the same. And when we get out of that season, we have a tendency to try to find ways to continue to move the kingdom forward without God moving forward. We're not very good at, at uh, knowing what to do when God's not active in the way that we're comfortable with him being active, but sometimes he shifts and is doing something different. And so we want to keep the old thing going. If we're not careful, we'll be like to remember the four brothers of, of Levi or, or Aaron, of the four sons of Aaron, when the fire fell out of the cloud in the, in the wilderness on the day of the inauguration of the tabernacle and the fire fell on two of the sons' altar. It didn't fall on the other two. So the supernatural heavenly fire was now burning on an earthly altar, but it wasn't burning on their earthly altar. So they went and got earthly fire and added it to their altar. So their altar looked as good as their brother's altar. But when they did that, the holy fire came across the platform and killed both of those boys who brought what NIV calls unauthorized fire. And sometimes if we're not careful, when we're not seeing the thing that we think we should be seeing for whatever reason, whatever motivates us, we begin to add other things to make up for it, to make it look like it's as good as our house as it is at their house, even though it's not necessarily what God's doing at our house. So over the last, over the last few years, really decades, we've added some things. We've gotten, we've gotten better at learning leadership principles. We, we used to be pretty good theologians on Sunday, and now I can sit in churches, sometimes I hear more about leadership than I do biblical theology. We've learned how to use social media and use the influence of it, and we want to learn it. 
We've learned how to be politically balanced, which is hard because it keeps going back and forth. That's a tough one. And then, and then we've learned the importance of community acceptance and how to get along in the group that we live with. We're even learning more about generational awareness because generations are changing so rapidly, trying to keep up and know how to reach this generation and that one. So we've got all these things we're doing. And somehow in the midst of all of that, if we're not careful, that becomes a false fire to us. It becomes, we're doing all of these things, and these, by these things, we're going to build the church. By these things, we're going to reach the next generation. By this, we're going to do something great. And yet, it's really not what God called us, because if we return back to the call of God that began in our life so many years ago, it was a call to a supernatural walk. It was a call to God doing something through us, not us doing something for him. It was a call that required his activity in us. And if we replace that with other things, we can get so caught up in them that we can miss the real call of God on our life and the real purpose of God, which is him at work. I think it's interesting here because what we have in this moment is Elijah's plowing. He's just, Elijah is plowing and Elijah comes up to him by the direction of God. Remember, God had spoken to Elijah and said, I want you to go find this young man and I want you to get him ready to take your place. And so when he sees the young man, he just takes his cloak off, that cloak that he had used to smoke waters and do other things. It just was the, had become the symbol of his anointing. And he takes that cloak and he just throws it up over the shoulders of this young man and he just drags it off. He doesn't even leave it there. He just drags it off. Whatever happened in that moment was so dynamic that Elisha said, I'm coming with you. Now, I don't really know what happened. I, I don't know, but somehow he experienced something in that moment that was not natural. It was something beyond being, uh, being a man with a great inheritance. He was going to inherit the farm. It was going to be his. He had a, he had a good future. He had a job. Everything everyone else expected him to do, he was doing. He, he had his own dreams, and they were being fulfilled, and there it was. And suddenly, he encountered something supernatural, and that supernatural encounter literally caused him to say, whatever that was, I'd rather have that than this. It was a, it's an incredible moment in Scripture when the shift happens so quickly. And he says to him, I'm coming. He said, but I just need to take care of a little business. He said, go do whatever you want to do. I didn't do anything to you, which is, a, which is a dynamic statement because he's saying, I didn't do that. If something happened to you, God did it. And if God's done something in you, then you do what you need to do. But don't, don't blame me for it. <laughs> I kind of like that thought. <clears throat> but something happened. Something dynamic happened and something should happen that a next generation should experience something from the previous generation that makes them want the supernatural activity of God. My concern for the generation coming up now a little bit is that our generation sometimes has gotten better at the things I just listed at leadership principles and social media use and political balance and community acceptance and generational awareness and a lot of other things we could add to the list, that we've gotten better at that and we've raised them up to know how to do that, but they've not seen us operate in the power of the Holy Spirit the way they should have seen us operate in the power of the Holy Spirit. And we've not put a mantle of authority that's spiritual, a mantle of, of, of faith that's spiritual, a mantle of, a, we haven't given them that so that they look at us and say, what you have I want. What's in that mantle is what I want in my life. Something that would, that would re-engage us to make us say, wait a minute, if we don't get this right in the years we have left, as those of you in my age bracket, if we don't get this right, then it may be lost. And the next generation may not have anything to imitate except what we've left them. And that may not be enough to bring America back to God.
I'm not trying to be harsh. I'm just trying to say, I think it's time for those of us who can remember, who can remember. When I was a kid, I spent a long time ago now, I hate to admit it, I have eight grandsons now, by the way, just so you know that. I don't know why you needed to know that, but I needed to say it, so we got that out there. I'm proud of all of them. I have no granddaughters, and so when my grandsons get married, I'll get granddaughters. That's what my kids tell me. What I tell them is, go adopt me a little girl. If you can't make one, adopt one, but I want a little girl. <laughs> so that's a whole other thing. We don't know how I got off on this stuff. I just sometimes... Under the anointing, they don't know, you know, tell them what you'll say. Isn't that what they say? <laughs> so the truth is, though, that, that I, I, I want my kids to grow up knowing the power of God, not, not just the principles we've learned about leadership. When I was a kid, when I was a kid in a Pentecostal Assemblies of God church, it was unusual for us to have a service that somebody didn't give a message in tongues. I just couldn't hardly remember one as a kid. Somebody, it was usually the same lady, it was usually the same message, but at least we had the message in tongues. <laughs> I mean, I get it. It wasn't always God, but we always had a message in tongues. <laughs> but whatever is wrong with that, what was right with it was the reality that we believed that the move of the Holy Spirit was very important to us. We had a high value on prophetic utterances and on, on the tongues and the interpretation and an expectation that it would happen. I, I, I could just stand and tell stories. When we pastored up in North Dallas area, we, uh, the church, God blessed it, it grew, it was good. But I'll never forget one Sunday morning, and it was normal for us to have the move of the Spirit with the manifestation of tongues, interpretation, prophetic utterance. And it was, it was most of the time right. Occasionally it wasn't. Uh, you know, we, people don't always get it right. Amen? It's part of leadership's job to help them, teach them, lead them. Anyway, this Sunday, there was a message in tongues that came up at the end of a worship time. This is a, this is a large church, so it's a lot of people, but, but it came, and, and, it was, and you knew it was real, the whole church. You know, you can always know when it's right because everybody knows to get quiet. There's just, you just know this is... This is more than us. This is not just somebody praying in the spirit. And when it happened, uh, the Lord spoke to me and I stepped to the, I was over here back when we used to always sit on the platform. Y'all remember way back then, a long time ago? And then they kicked us off so we wouldn't know what was going on behind us. I, I know the plan here. I, I, I wasn't born just yesterday. And I stepped up because I felt the Lord nudge me that you have the message. And he was speaking the message to me. It was growing in me, the interpretation and when I gave it, it was so incredible. It was so powerful. I, I even struggled to give it because I, I knew what God was saying already. And it was very particular to a person in the crowd. And God said, you've planned to kill yourself. You think this is your last day on earth. You've come here today to this house in hopes that something would happen so you could have hope again. I was like, do I have to say this, God? Because if I'm wrong... But I did it. We obeyed the Lord, followed his direction. I had everybody bow their heads and pray against the spirit of death. I said, who is it? Who is it? A lady in her probably early 50s, very attractive lady. She's well-dressed. She, she looked like a businesswoman. She stood up on the very back row, all the way back right through here. When I saw her, she, or she waved at me. She didn't stand. So I had a conversation with her. I told everybody else, keep your mouth shut. Keep your eyes, eyes closed and just pray and don't look up. So we had a conversation. I said, is what just said, is that you? Yes, sir. I said, uh, you, you, you serious about committing suicide? Yes, sir. 
I said, do you believe God just proved to you he is God and he loves you? Yes, sir. I said, are you ready to surrender everything to God? Yes, sir. I said, then come down. And here she come. Well, the whole church just went crazy, you know. Yeah. And so we prayed over her. She gave her gun to someone that she had with her that day. And, and, and down the road, years later, her kids came to know the Lord. I watched God transition her life. I thought about that. I thought, what would have happened? And here's what she said. Okay, don't be offended. If you're watching online, I'm fixing to offend you. I'm just preparing you so that you'll enjoy your offense. I don't know how else to tell you, but <laughs> if it's going to offend you. She said to me, she said to me, when I turned in, I didn't know anything about the church, and I misunderstood the sign because the church cross the street down the street was First Baptist. She said, I thought this was First Baptist. I, well, I grew up Baptist, so I thought I was going to a Baptist church. She said, but somewhere in the middle of the worship, I realized this was not a Baptist church. <laughs> and then she said, I am so thankful today that I didn't go to a church where the Holy Spirit was not allowed to do what he just did because the Holy Spirit just saved my life. What I'm saying to us is very simple. We need the anointing of the Holy Spirit and the work of the Spirit. We need the power of the Holy Spirit. We need to be hungry. We need to re-engage in the pursuit of the anointing. We've pursued a lot of things. It really hadn't got us where we hoped it would. But I tell you, back in the day, and it still happens today in our churches, I don't mean to misstate that, but our greatest time of growth is when we were the most Pentecostal, not when we were the least Pentecostal. That's just the truth. And when Pentecostalness is more theology than practice, it's useless. And sometimes trying to fit in the community is exactly the opposite thing we should be trying to do. I've noticed where the community's going, and I don't think I want to go there. But I do think they'll reach a place where they want somebody else that'll take them somewhere else, and we need to be the person going somewhere else. So in a nutshell, I'm going to tell you a five-minute story, which could be a sermon series. So he follows Elisha, Elijah follows, is followed by Elisha, and he washes his feet, he takes care of his hands, he cleans up his stuff, he becomes his servant or his attendant. He evidently becomes a part of the school of the prophets that he oversaw. All of those things are happening, we don't even know exactly how long that relationship went on, but somewhere down toward the end, it became uh, known that Elijah was about to be taken. So they're together one day because evidently he was always with him at a different level than anyone else was, and he was there. And he said, what is it you want from me? What could I do for you before I'm gone? He said, it's really pretty simple. I want the double portion. Now, the double portion in the old, old law was what the eldest son got. He would receive the responsibility to, to own, he would own the place, the house. The other kids would get, get some inheritance to go out and do what they did, but the, but the oldest son would, would get the, the main thing and he'd get the double portion. So it, would, it didn't just represent more power than you, it represented your authority. I want to I take your place, I want to do this. I want to walk in the anointing and I want to finish what you started. As I say everywhere I preach, a God-sized dream always requires more than one generation. He said, I want to be the generation to finish what you start. 
It was a powerful statement. Elijah knew, Elijah knew exactly what Elisha was asking. He says, okay, here's the deal. If you see me when I'm taken, you can go. But right now, I'm headed to Gilgal. He, the next four cities each speak to us full sermons. What is Gilgal? Well, Gilgal is the place when the children of Israel had come, come into the promised land and, and they had came out of, out of the old uh, wilderness and they crossed over and now they're in the promised land. Well, during their time in the wilderness, they had not obeyed the law concerning circumcision. As a matter of fact, during their time in, in uh, bondage in Egypt, they had not kept the law. And now he said, you can't walk into the promise of God if you don't walk into, if you don't celebrate circumcision. I guess celebrate's a good word. I don't know. And so, unless you participate in circumcision, and that's where they were. But what does that represent to us? What does that mean, Pastor? Well, it means, because circumcision always, of course, has to do with the flesh. And he's, he's saying to him, if, you're not, if you can't deal with your flesh, you can't have this anointing. Boy, there's a message there. You know, we want to walk in it. See, that's the thing about the other things. None of those things requires to deal with our flesh. But the anointing requires something of us that is a little different. Oh, I could preach that, man, all day, but I better keep going. Then he takes him to Bethel. He said, well, and he gets to Bethel, he gets through with Bethel. And he says, you can stay here if you'd like. No, I'm going to go where you go. But what is Bethel? Well, Bethel is the place where God and man met. It's where they met in private. It's, it's this, the house of God. You know what the term means. But it's a powerful moment of man and God in private where they meet together. It's a private place where I meet with God. You know what it's, I believe? I believe if you don't develop a devotional life, a private meeting place with God, you'll never walk in the anointing the way God wants you to walk in the anointing. If all your prayer is only public, if all your worship is only public, if all your Bible study and reading is only for the purpose of the public, you'll never get where God wants to take you. But something shifts when you build a Bethel. I'd love to talk to you about the secret place all day. I, I'd love to. I, I tell you, I love what Jesus said when he was teaching them how to pray. He said, here's how you pray. He said, look at me, guys. Don't you pray like them. They pray in public. Their whole prayer life, their spiritual life is a public thing. I want yours to be private. I want you to go in the room and shut the door behind you. And when you go in the room and shut the door behind you, the Father's going to see what you do in secret. And when he sees what you do in secret, he's going to bless you in public. Wow. What an incredible opportunity. So Bethel. Then he takes him from Bethel to Jericho. Jericho, the symbolism of Jericho. Another great sermon. Um, what happened to Jericho? Well, you know what happened. They spent six days walking around Jericho with their mouth shut and their sword put up. You know, if you can't learn to have a public walk, where one was private, now this is public. If you can't learn to have a public walk where you keep your sword in its sheath, you don't defend yourself, and you keep your mouth shut up even though you have something you want to say. That, that's good preaching right there. I wish I had time to preach that. I, I would just love to go off on that. But again, it'd take, but there's something being developed. And so sometimes God actually lets you walk through some things that you want to defend, you want to attack, you want to declare, you want to speak, you want to gossip, you want to do all this stuff. And God's standing there saying, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. Because if you can get this right, you can have the double portion. We don't even realize what's up for grabs. And those other things we listed, they, they'll let you do that, but the anointing sets a different standard. He finally gets to the river. 
Jordan River, where the school of the prophets met. And the school of the prophets, the prophets, the training, the boys in training, they came out and said to him, don't you know he's going to be taken? They were all being real spiritual. They had spiritual insight. They were proud of themselves. He said, I don't even want to talk about it. <laughs> he said, y'all don't know, but I got to deal with him. And if I see him gone, I'm going to get the anointing. So sure enough, he smokes the waters, it parts, they walk over. And they don't go far until this chariot of fire comes down like a whirlwind, scoops him up. Here's the deal, though. When he walked across the Jordan, none of the guys in the school of the prophets walked with him. They stayed on this side. Suddenly, I realized the Jordan also represents something. When the children of Israel came across the Jordan, they had to leave the manna behind. They had to leave the cloud behind. They had to leave everything they had known and what they had depended on and what they had trusted in, the lifestyle they understood. They had to leave it all behind in order to come into the new place God had for them. And when we cross over into a life of the anointing, the things we've depended on, the things we've trusted, those things we just listed a few minutes ago that we've learned to use and negotiate, and they've been our help and our strength and our ability, suddenly those aren't, they can't go with us. The things we've mastered, the things we've learned, but they've really not got the job done. We leave all that behind. And we leave our friends behind usually because, you know, how hard it must have been for Abraham to take Ishmael outside and his mother to make room for the promised child. And sometimes it's hard for us to give up those things we've had because we did it. God didn't do it. It's the product of our efforts, not his. And God says the two can't live in the same house. We have to leave them behind. But on the other side, he, he received it. Elisha drops the mantle. He picks it up. He runs back and smokes the water. Where is the Lord God of Elijah? You love that. I love that part. The water goes. I love King James here. You can't beat King James sometimes. It says the water went hither and thither. <laughs> I don't really know what hither and thither means, but I think hither's the left and thither's the right. I'm not sure, but they separated. So thither went over there and hither went over there and he walked through on dry land. What a moment. What a declaration. He would go on to perform in the scripture, the miracles we know of, twice as many are in the Bible for him as there were in Elijah's turn. We also know he walked in great authority. But the story ends where we need to cover tonight before we step away. The end of the story, I'm not even going to take time to go to the scripture because you know the story well. There was a young man named Gehazi that had become to him what he had been to Elijah. He was his servant. And Gehazi was everywhere he was and, and knew the stories and he was the one that carried the staff and laid it on the dead body. We have, he was a participant in what God was doing. And then one day Naaman comes and Naaman has leprosy and Naaman says to, to Gehazi, go tell your master that uh, I've, I've heard he can heal the sick and that God works through him to heal the sick. He does, he runs in, he tells him, there's this man out there. And he said, oh, by the way, Naaman's got money. He's got gold, he's got suits of clothes, he's, got, he's brought all this offering. And you know, I keep the books for us and an offering would be real good right now. I'm telling you, this is, this is great. This is God's timing, it's God's moment. And he said, he looked at him, he said, you know it's not God's time for us to take money. Wow, who is this guy? 
He said, you tell Naaman if he wants to be healed, go down to the Jordan River, dip seven times. Y'all know this story as well as I do. First of all, he has an attitude about it. Then his servant helps him. He gets over it. He goes down. He dips. He gets healed. He comes back up and he comes back and he says, I'm here. I'm healed. All the leprosy's gone. It's incredible. I just, I want to give this money. Please tell him that I want to bless him. And he goes back in. He said, you want to go out and meet him? I already want to meet him. Man, Elisha, you got an attitude? What's the deal? He said, you know, Something was going on between him and God, and God was saying, that's not how I'm going to meet your need. I've got another way I'm going to do it. And he had already learned to be dependent on God, not the offering plate. We learned so much from this guy. He said, I'm not going out there. You send him on his way. So he does. Gehazi, what does Gehazi do? He runs around, goes out the back door. And, and in Texas, we use this term. I don't know if you use it here, but he, he headed him off at the pass. And then he said to him, he lied, and he said, well, the master's changed his mind. He uh, decided he wouldn't mind a little gold and a couple of suits of clothes. Oh, it's so good. I, can't, I was wanting to do this. I'm so glad he's letting me do it. Here, give him this one and this one and this one. Here, here's some money. Here's some more money. Here, and, and he just loads him up, and Gehazi runs and hides it, goes back to the house. Elisha says, where have you been? He said, well, just taking care of the stuff around here. You know, it gets busy, a lot to do. And he said, you know, God shows me things. I, that's his answer. What a, what a wonderful response. You know, God, so, and then immediately he knew he was caught. Yeah, he said, let me, let me help you, Gehazi. You can keep the money, I don't want it. And you can keep the clothes, that's, you keep all that. But you also get the leprosy that once belonged to Naaman. Now, from the moment he had leprosy, he was disqualified to go into the temple, tabernacle. He was no longer qualified to walk in the anointing. You say, that's sad. Oh, it's sad, but it gets sadder. It gets sadder because after Elisha died, they put his body in a tomb. Later on, someone else had died and running from some robbers. They threw his body into the tomb with Elisha. And that body, the dead man, when he touched the bones of Elisha, came back to life. And we can preach all the positive about bones with the anointing on them. But it's really a sad story. Because the truth is, it shouldn't have been his bones. It should have been his descendant. It should have been somebody keeping that going and moving forward. And I wonder sometimes if in our generational pass-bys and pass-ons, and I wonder if, I wonder if we haven't received the anointing we need to receive and passed it on to those who are next in line. I'm not trying to be heavy. I'm, I'm just saying I'm ready to re-engage the pursuit of the anointing. I'm ready to say, God, I'm ready to deal with my flesh. I, I'm ready to rebuild my Bethel. God, I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready to learn to walk six days in a row with my mouth shut in public and to shout on Sunday with that same mouth because I'm going to learn how to worship in public and how to walk in public. And I'm going to learn how to pray in private. I want my private life and my public life. I want you to line it all up, oh God. I want you to help me. And I'm willing to walk across the Jordan and leave some of my friends behind and leave some of my ways behind take Ishmael outside the camp I'm ready God for the working of the Holy Spirit to be restored to my ministry at a greater level than I've ever even known I'm ready to be dependent on the anointing somebody asked me 
What is the anointing, Pastor Rick? I don't know. I've tried to describe it and explain it, and then I got it. I was in an airport, and I was walking, and I stepped up on this moving sidewalk. And I wasn't walking any faster, but I was making more headway. I said, this is it. This is the anointing. <laughs> it's that thing that you can only say, look what God's doing. But you can't get there if you don't get on the sidewalk because you like being in control. I think God's calling us to a new level of spirit-filled life, anointed ministry. And I pray that this generation that's been ordained tonight, you would walk in the anointing and someday you'll take your cloak and throw it over somebody else's shoulders and what they learn from you will not be simply some leadership principles. They'll learn from you how to pray, how to seek God, how to hear the voice of the Spirit, how to live by faith, how to walk on that sidewalk the supernatural help of God. That's what I pray. You know, tonight, before we transition, and it's time to, you may be in this crowd and you say, I'm not even a pastor, but I, but I want the anointing in my life too. I want to walk in the supernatural in my life. If, if you're ready to say, God, I want to re-engage in the pursuit of the anointing, in the pursuit of the work of the, I want to re-engage in a life in the spirit I'm willing to leave some things behind. If you'll lead me, God, I'll do all those things. I'll deal with my flesh. Show me. Convict me, Holy Spirit. Guide me. Help me. I want to walk in the fullness of what you have for me because my children need to know the fullness of the Spirit. And my grandchildren need to know the work of the Spirit. And my community doesn't need to know what I know about leadership. They need to know about the work of the Holy Spirit. They need to know the work of God. And I'm ready to say, God, I'm going after this. If that's you, just stand straight up, and I'm going to pray over you right where you are before we move on. Father, you see those that are beginning to stand around this auditorium. Every one of them, every one of them matter to you. Every one of them are important to you, and they have a purpose in your kingdom, but it's a purpose that cannot be fulfilled in natural ability. Their purpose is too high. They are too important. They are too special to accomplish what you're calling them to do only by learning some human principles. They can only do what they're called to do if you help them, if the anointing of the Holy Spirit is upon them, if they recognize their need of the anointing, if they surrender to it, if they're willing to leave some other folks behind if they're willing to say no to their flesh, if they're willing to walk right in public and live right in private, if they're ready to go there, God, you can take them there. And I pray, I pray the anointing of the Holy Spirit would brush them tonight, that even right now they would feel the cloak of Elijah go across their shoulders. They would taste whatever it was he tasted that would keep him and make him not able to go back to the ways of the world because he had tasted and seen that the Lord's way was the best way and the power of the Spirit is better than the power of men that it's not by might nor by power but by my Spirit says the Lord I pray that anointing on them I pray that hunger would rise up that desire would rise up and I pray what you begin tonight would be fulfilled 
And that when the devil comes by with a truckload of money, saying, give that up, I'll pay you to go my way. And when somebody comes by with a promotion or an opportunity or something they've always wanted, but it takes them off the pathway to the anointing, I pray they would say, I don't want it. Send them away. I'm not even going to meet them. I'm not going to let them tip me. I'm not going to go there. No, I want the anointing of the powerful spirit of God. I can't be bought. I can't be persuaded. I can't be taken away. I don't want to know something that's not going to be, that's not going to lead me to more of God. I want God in my life. I want his anointing in my life. I want his power at work in my life. I want you, oh God. I want all you have. And I want to show the generation a picture of you the last generation didn't show me. I pray I'll show them more of you. I pray this in the name of Jesus. And I thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you, guys.